Welcome to Pod Chip Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Here is talk show host Jimmy Kimmel. It was a pretty hellish weekend here in the state of California this weekend. You know, we're, we've got three major wildfires going, two of which are not too far from us here in Hollywood. Hundreds of homes have been burned to the ground. I don't know how many thousands of families were evacuated. In the middle of all this, the president weighed in with this touching message of support. He wrote, there is no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California, except that forest management is so poor. Billions of dollars are given each year with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forest. Remedy now or no more Fed payments. The head of the firefighters union called the president's mismanagement charges irresponsible, reckless, and insulting. And their Pasadena local told the president directly, you are wrong. Only 3% of California woodlands are run by the state of California. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue, who oversees the National Forest Service, and Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke doubled down on the president's tweets during the California wildfires that killed more than 80 people and burned hundreds of thousands of acres when they pushed for new rules that would allow them to ignore environmental requirements when conducting dead tree removal and forest thinning. Given the enormity of the tragedy that's unfolded here in California, the idea of doing more to thin the forest has gained additional traction. This week, we'll examine if there's any scientific basis to support the numerous calls to clear the forest as a way of helping reduce fire risk. Today, we're joined by Dr. Chad Hansen, who's the Director and Principal Ecologist at the John Muir Project. Dr. Hansen co-founded the John Muir Project in 1996. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree from UCLA, his law degree from the University of Oregon, and his PhD in ecology from the University of California at Davis. He's published a long and distinguished list of scientific research papers on fire ecology, wildlife use of burned forests, and fire trends. I start by asking Chad what he's learned from a lifetime of studying fires in the West. One of the things that I I focus on a lot is uh, researching assumptions that drive a lot of forest and fire management activities, but which have never been tested scientifically. Um, or where there are papers out there, but they're all modeling papers and there's no empirical data, actual data that informs these things. So I spent a lot of my career really looking into these questions and finding out what the truth is. I hear over and over again that forests used to be a place that absorbed carbon from the atmosphere and they were good for the planet. But now in California, because of all these fires, that that's reversed. And now they're a net emitter of carbon into the atmosphere. And this is a really bad thing. And it's going to stop us from reaching our greenhouse gas emission targets. True. No, it's absolutely not true. You know, those, um, those reports are based upon uh, models that uh, assume essentially that when fire burns through a forest, when trees are killed, they're essentially vaporized and all the carbon goes into the atmosphere and then nothing regrows. Neither one of those things is true, and they're not even remotely true. In fact, even in the most intensely burned patches where fire kills all of the trees, which in reality, even in the biggest fires, it's only a small portion, a minor portion uh, of the over, overall fire. 
But even in those areas, only about two or three percent of the above ground biomass is actually consumed. You know, in other words, ends up as carbon. the The trees are still standing there, but they've yeah, been. Yeah, well, I mean, on the PCT when I walked it. A lot of it was burnt, but you didn't see piles of ash. You saw trees and the bark was burnt. And often most of the branches were still there. And I mean, they proved to be kind of a hazard just in terms of walking, but they weren't. I mean, the the tree is still there. The model assumes that the tree basically explodes. All of that carbon goes up into the atmosphere. Nothing of the tree is left. But when you walk through these forests, as, as both you and I have done, what you notice is a lot of standing trees where the just the bark. I mean, what percentage of the tree do you think actually burns? It's a tiny percentage. You know, so even the biggest fires, mostly they burn at low and moderate intensity, where there's virtually no consumption of the trees themselves. But even in that portion, that 20 or 30 percent that burns at high intensity, where most or all the trees are killed, that what we call crown fire. The studies out there that have actually looked at this and measured this in the field found that only about 3% of the biomass of the trees is actually consumed. So basically, the outer layer of the bark and the pine needles, and in many cases, small twigs. That's about it. Okay, so the model is 97% wrong then. That's right. And in fact, it's even worse than that, because the model only talks about or basically factors in the carbon that's consumed and therefore admit, emitted into the atmosphere, but not all the CO2 that's pulled out of the atmosphere and sequestered and stored in the forest and all the rapidly regrowing vegetation that comes in after fire. So let's talk about rapidly regrowing vegetation because myth number two is these fires are now burning a lot hotter than they ever burnt before. We'll get to the second part of that assumption, but are fires burning a lot hotter than they used to? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, in, in our forests, few people realize we actually have less fire now than we had historically before fire suppression. Uh, so, I mean, this is just a function mostly of fire suppression. Most fires are, are stopped before they ever get to any significant size. And so we actually have less fire now, and we have less fire of all intensities. One of the common assumptions out there is that, especially when you get big fires, that they burn mostly at high intensity. And that's pure myth. Uh, these, even the biggest fires are mostly low and moderate intensity. And in fact, they're very much like small fires, just at a larger scale. And so from many, many different studies, dozens of studies, some I've published, uh, some colleagues have published, we know now that historically in our forests, fires were always mixed intensity. They were mostly low and moderate, but they had a significant portion 20%, 25%, 30% in many cases, that was high intensity. And it's actually not that different from what it is now. The main thing that's different is we just have less fire of all intensities currently in our forests because of fire suppression. Okay, so you've got low, medium, and, and high intensity. Where you do have high intensity fire, I hear over and over again that it's like a moonscape. It's been nuked. Nothing can ever grow back there. And that leads to, we'll, we'll talk in the second half about kind of what, where all these myths are leading in terms of, of people pushing their own little agenda. Is that true, though? Can, does stuff ever grow back or is it so hot that all the seeds die? Yeah, this is, this is one of the most persistent myths out there. You know, I've been doing field research in these fire areas, including the biggest fires and the biggest high-intensity fire patches for over, over 15 years now in the forests of the Sierra Nevada and elsewhere in the West. I have yet to find a single acre where that's true, where that, that notion is, is accurate. This idea that the fire burns so hot that it sterilizes the soil and nothing will grow. That's pure myth. Uh, what actually happens is what the fires do is they, they 
turn the, the pine needles and the twigs and the little branches on the forest floor into a nutrient-rich bed of mineral ash. And that spurs rapid growth of, of vegetation, uh, conifer seedlings, uh, pine trees and fir, uh, oak trees, uh, shrubs, wildflowers. And all of that vegetation that starts to grow in immediately after fire, that accelerates that growth every single year after the fire. And that's pulling huge amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequestering and storing it in the regenerating forest. And so uh, there's just no truth to this whatsoever. So both these things, we'll get to some other myths in a minute, but both these things are pointing people to say, we need to log more. That seems like the response, like if we want to meet our climate targets, Chad, we we really, really need to log more. Or, you know, if we want to stop this this crazy high intensity fire, we need to log more. Is that is that kind of what's happening? The number of studies have, have looked at that, and that's certainly a, a political message that the logging industry has promoted and some of their allies in Congress and elsewhere. Um, and what the science is telling us is uh, very much the opposite. In fact, if logging happens ostensibly to, uh, to try to curb fire, uh, to try to pull trees out of the forest uh, under the guise of reducing fuels, what actually happens is a couple of things. First of all, in most cases, increased logging is associated with increased fire intensity. So in other words, the more trees that are pulled out of the forest, the fire, fires don't tend to burn less intensely. The most heavily logged areas usually burn more intense. So that's completely counterintuitive. So explain right. that. So if you have less trees in a forest, why is it burning more intensely? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of physics. You know, if, if you build a campfire, uh, you, you don't put a big log on the fire and put a match to it and expect it to burn. It's not going to happen. You use kindling. And, and really, uh, what, what drives fires is mostly weather, but the, the, the things, that, things that are consumed, the fuel, is mostly very, very small diameter material, twigs and pine needles and, and things like that. Tree trunks are not combustible. They really just don't burn. You know, again, the outer bark can burn, but the trees themselves don't burn. What logging does is it removes non-combustible material essentially from the forest and leaves behind very combustible kindling-like slash debris, the branches and small twigs and things like that that are not possible to get up off the forest floor after the, the, the tree trunks are removed. And that's very combustible. The other thing that logging does is that it reduces the cooling shade of the forest canopy. By removing a lot of trees, you have more sunlight reaching the forest floor. And what that does is it creates hotter and drier conditions. And that means everything on the forest floor gets more dried out, more potentially combustible. And um, logging also uh, spreads invasive weeds like cheatgrass, which is very, very flammable. Uh, and cheatgrass loves a lot of sunlight. And so you get a lot of that after, after intensive logging. And the last one is a little bit more technical, but basically when you have a lot more trees, it cuts down on the wind speeds that drive fires. It has a buffering effect in a sense. And um, when a lot of the trees are removed, that buffering effect is, is reduced or eliminated and fires spread through those forests faster. So we, we get all these messages as well that the forest is just way overgrown. There's too much stuff in the forest, too much understory, and that's what's making these fires happen more frequently and burn hotter. Yeah, this is, this is a, a, another a key one. We've, we hear a lot this idea that historically our forests were open and park-like. I'm sure you've heard that before, uh, that fire burned you know, so frequently, uh, like every 10 or 12 years, like clockwork, and, and there was no understory. 
that that's something we know now is is you know a, a gross oversimplification. There were always a portion of the forests that were open and had little understory, but it was a minor portion. There were many dense forests, incredibly dense forests, lots of small trees, open forests, dense forests, old forests, young forests. It was highly variable. And we know that now based on a lot of different studies. And so this kind of uh, simplified idea of open park-like forests has been you know, replaced with more complex idea of how these things work. Interestingly, um, we have lots of uh, data now that shows us that our forests currently actually have less biomass in them than they did a century ago. And that's mostly due to the impact of decades of logging. So even though we do have slightly more small trees in many forests, we have fewer mature trees. Overall, our forests are less dense now than they were a century ago. So you hear on the news, I mean, it's absolute tragedy what's happened in the camp and Woolsey and, and numerous other fires before it. I mean, this time last year, we were, we were in Santa Rosa doing a story. And I mean, it's it's just incredible, the number. You you hear this correlation between thinning of the forests and somehow helping reduce the number of urban fires. Like, how are those things connected, if at all? And, and this is a really important issue because, you know, we just had uh, Donald Trump threaten California and say, uh, you know, you need to increase your logging levels in your forests. To, uh, supposedly to save towns from wildland fire, or uh, you know he's going to withhold uh, federal support for for fire responses. But, you know the reality is this: is that we have study after study telling us now that the only effective way to protect homes from wildland fire is to focus on the homes themselves to make them more fire safe, more fire resistant. Roofing and rain gutter guards that keep those pine needles from accumulating next to the roof, um, ember proof vents so that flaming embers born on the winds ahead of the fires can't get sucked into the attic and burn the house down. Things like that. Simple things that can keep a house safe in combination with what we call defensible space. That's basically pruning a vegetation within 100 feet of the house, 100 feet of individual houses, uh, removing small trees and shrubs and grasses, removing the lower limbs on mature trees, but leaving those mature trees standing. When these things are done uh, for a given house or in a given community, it's incredibly effective, and in many cases, over 95% of the homes will survive, even the most intense wildland fires, and in some cases, even over 99% of the homes will survive. Now, it's not 100%. It's not a panacea. Uh, you know, we're, we're probably not going to get to perfect home no, survival. I mean, anything north of 90% seems like a miracle. Absolutely. Look, you know, when we have so many homes being lost, when we have so many lives being lost, when we know based on the science that if we focus on homes that we can protect over 95% of the homes, then that's pretty damn good. And it really indicates that's where we should putting our- So why are we all being distracted by this craziness of going into forests nowhere near the urban interface and dealing with them? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, economic and political opportunism involved in this question. And there's a lot of just good faith misunderstanding about these issues. Um, you know, most of what we've learned about forest and fire ecology, we've learned in the last 15 years. So our, our learning curve has been tremendously steep. And there's always a lag time between the accumulation of scientific knowledge and the assimilation of that knowledge into the public dialogue and into policies. And uh, you know, a lot of scientists are not comfortable talking to the public. They like talking to other scientists. We need more scientists to be uh, communicating about these things so we can, we can bridge that gap between past, uh, past beliefs about these issues and current understanding scientifically. Unfortunately, it just seems like even 
big state institutions like the California Air Resources Board, for instance, keep telling us that, for instance, the carbon myth that these trees are putting more and more carbon into the atmosphere based on models that that you just pointed out are ridiculously faulty. I think we just you know need to be candid about this. The state agencies are getting a lot of their information, in many cases, most of their information from the United States Forest Service. The problem is the United States Forest Service is in the commercial logging business. The Forest Service, under current laws and longstanding laws, sells public timber to private logging companies and keeps most of the revenue for its budget. So it's what we call a perverse financial incentive. The way the Forest Service keeps this program going as a political matter is by telling the public that they have to log the forest in order to save them from fire. You know, it's what I call the catastrophic wildfire political narrative. And, uh, you know, so that's really what drives the commercial logging program on federal lands. And now word from our sponsor, Fully. In California, more than 1,500 inmates were deployed to help fight the recent fires. In Norway, prisoners are so happy, they spend a lot of their day singing. According to the World Happiness Report, Norway is the happiest place on Earth. We could learn a lot from Norway. It seems like we could all benefit from channeling a bit of the Norwegian lifestyle, which is why I bought the Capisco office chair, which is made in Norway and sold it fully. With this active sitting chair, I can honestly say I'm as happy as a Norwegian. The Capisco chair is comfortable and healthy. It's all about active sitting, which supports healthier posture by aligning your spine, opening up your hips, engaging your core and improving circulation. In short, the Capisco chair from Fully is very Norwegian. Unlike most chairs, you can sit for long periods of time without any pain. So I can now watch my favorite Norwegian climate thriller, Occupied, for hours without getting uncomfortable. What happens if we all stop using fossil fuel today? We're really helping by creating a sustainable, climate-friendly energy source for ages to come. Fully wants to change the way you feel at the office and at home. When you move more fully, you engage fully, you show up more fully, feeling healthier and happier than ever just like a true Norwegian. So go to fully.com slash earth to check out their array of affordable and eco-friendly standing chairs and active sitting chairs. It's just a smarter, healthier, and more comfortable way to work. You'll move more fully, you'll engage more fully, so you'll show up more fully for yourself, the people around you, and the world. Go to fully.com slash earth. And now back to this week's episode on fire myths. I asked Dr. Chad Hansen, the director of the John Muir Project, to help break down how much of California's forest is managed by the federal government versus state and private lands. In California, uh, in terms of our forests, uh, we about have about 33 million acres of forest. Uh, the majority of that, the biggest chunk, is, is federal lands. It's, it's national forests. Uh, national parks are a significant chunk, too, but mostly national forests. And then we have private lands and then state lands. But they're definitely well down the list compared to national forest lands. So the feds are kind of dictating based on their mandate, which is to open roads and then areas up to logging. They're basically putting forward policy that perpetuates that mission. That's right. And it's kind of like relying upon scientists who work for ExxonMobil to tell you about climate change. 
you know, you, you need to think about what they're saying in the context of who they work for and those financial and political incentives. It doesn't mean that everything that a Forest Service scientist or staffer is telling you is wrong, uh, but it does mean that uh, there's a lot that you're, you're not hearing at a minimum. So one of the things, another myth on the list um, is all these dead trees. For instance, there's hundreds of millions of dead trees um, in California alone. And we we have to cut, at least you must agree, Chad, that we have to cut those down because those surely create more fire danger. And this is one of the most interesting ones. So many of the things that we're discovering are exactly the opposite of what we kind of expect or, or would think would be true intuitively. This is one of those examples. So we heard this for years and years um, from the logging industry, from the Forest Service, and from a lot of pro-logging politicians that we have to get in there and kind of roll back environmental laws and uh, and do more logging of these dead trees so we can prevent the spread of fire in the forest and reduce fire intensity because these dead trees must be driving more intense fires. Uh, I was a co-author of the very first scientific study to look at that issue anywhere in the country and possibly globally. And we looked at this and it's really interesting because so many of these assumptions that drive fire and forest management policies, they seem so obvious that no one bothered to test them scientifically for decades. This is one. Um, we looked at this and we found, and we actually had you know data on, on how many dead trees were in the forest and then fires came through and we looked at how they burned. We found no relationship whatsoever. And other scientists came in and they said, there's, there's no way that's true. Um, dead trees, you know, they're, they're dry, they're fuel, they're very combustible. They must burn more intensely. It must drive more intense fires. They looked at the same question. They found the same thing. Other researchers came in, found the same thing. And then people started doing more comprehensive analyses, looking even deeper, looking at more and more years after the trees die. Well, what about, you know, 10 years later when the trees fall on the ground? Maybe then it burns more intensely. It turns out that those areas actually burn less intensely and most <laughs> less intensely. Most of the data now, and this is not this is not theoretical modeling. This is actual empirical data from real forest, real fires. And what they're finding is, is that with every year after the trees die, uh, including after the dead trees fall, uh, that when wildland fires come through, they tend to burn less intensely than in forests that have few or no dead trees or down logs on the ground. So what's going on there? You know, we, uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, really what it comes down to is physics. Most of these things are more complicated than we think. You think of a dead tree and it's fuel, right? It's combustible. But in reality, it's kind of like that large log and the campfire that I mentioned earlier. Um, once those dead needles fall on the ground, which they do pretty quickly, uh, they decay into soil rapidly. The small twigs fall and decay into soil. After a couple of years after the trees die, it's basically like a large log standing in the forest. There's not much to, to drive flames or carry flames. And interestingly, when they fall, more than acting like fuel, they act in many ways like giant sponges because what they do is they soak up and they retain massive amounts of soil moisture and they keep the forest floor more moist. Amazing. So there's another myth busted. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so one of the things that maybe we're not even, maybe the environmental movement is not being helpful in this regard, Chad, I'd love to get your take on is, is, is you hear this narrative over and over again that, you know what, climate change is leading to hotter, more fires, worse fires. I mean, is that, is that too simplified? Well, climate change is a significant factor. There's no question about it. You know, rising temperatures can influence and do influence wildland fires. 
But it is more complicated than that. Uh, first off, we are still in a significant deficit of fire in our forests relative to natural levels more than a century ago. So that's the first thing that needs to be understood. You know, we, we, we don't have an unnatural excess of fire. Interestingly, the amount of fire, the acres burned on average in a given year is going up. And it's been going up since the 1970s. And so we have more fire now than we had uh, you know, 40 years ago. But we have a lot less fire now than we had 100 years ago or 140 years ago. And so it's that pre-fire suppression baseline that matters so much. But here's one of the most interesting things. And I've published a few studies on this and others have done the same thing, um, kind of like the dead tree and fire thing. They looked at it and said, well, fires must be getting more intense. What's interesting is that as the annual acres of burning in our forests is gradually inching upwards every year and getting a little bit closer to what we had historically, naturally, fires are not burning more intensely. We're getting more fire than we had a few decades ago, but it's still mostly low and moderate intensity fire. And the proportion that burns at high intensity is not going up overall. And a bunch of different researchers have looked at this, and that's what the vast majority of the data indicate. So fascinating. So basically, we need to decouple forest fires in, in wild areas with urban fires that kill people and burn houses. It sounds like those are two different things that have been conflated. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good way to put it, actually, because we have to have totally separate conversations about what it means to have fire happen, wildland fire happen in a community where you have uh, oftentimes massive loss, tragic loss of homes and lives. Um, that is always a catastrophe uh, versus what it means to have uh, a fire, including a large fire in uh, a wild mountain forest, uh, some significant distance from a community. What does that mean? And it turns out that it means something completely different. In fact, we have now hundreds of scientific studies on this issue uh, ecologically in terms of biodiversity, what it means you know, what, what it means when, you know, those patches of high intensity fire occur, where fire kills most or all the trees, sometimes across hundreds, even thousands of acres, is the forest destroyed as we assumed for so many decades. And it turns out that when fire does that, when it burns more intensely, there are dozens and dozens of plant and animal species that have evolved over millennia to depend on intensely burned forest. Basically, areas where you have mostly dead trees. We call this snag forest habitat. You know, snag is a, a standing dead tree. Those areas have levels of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance that is comparable to old growth forest. In fact, in many of the studies, it's actually, it actually exceeds old growth forest. So it turns out the two most ecologically important forest types are old growth forest and dense old forest that burns hot where most of the trees are killed. This is like Big news, because really what you see in President Trump's tweets is trying to justify logging on forest land by pointing to what's happening in a place like Ventura or Thousand Oaks and saying, look at this horrible stuff. That I mean, he even says it. this mismanagement of forest land is leading to this, whereas there's no relationship between those two at all. No, I mean, where's where's the forest in, in Malibu? There's no forest in the sand. You know, you, these are these are chaparral ecosystems. You know, most of the forest, most of the fires that have burned homes and and where lives have been lost, they're not in forests. In fact, they're mostly no, nowhere near forests. They're in grasslands. They're chaparral. You know, shrub habitat. They're oak woodlands. But the areas that are in forest, where we've had tragic loss of homes and lives, these are mostly areas where we've had intensive logging. 
And it's like I mentioned earlier, you know, more logging is typically associated with more intense fire, faster rate of spread. And we saw that tragically in the campfire uh, that, that, that burned most of the houses in the town of Paradise in Northern California and where dozens of lives were lost. The area that it spread through before it burned down most of Paradise had been heavily logged on uh, national forest lands and on private lands in the years prior to the campfire. And so this is a perfect example of what uh, Donald Trump is trying to promote, is that kind of logging all across our forests. Tell us a little bit about burning trees for energy. Yeah, and this is one of the most dangerous myths out there right now. And, um, you know, this has been a, a big imperative for the Trump administration. Uh, Donald Trump's agricultural se uh, secretary, Sonny Perdue, who basically oversees the United States Forest Service, has specifically said that they want to ramp up increase uh, what they call biomass logging on national forest lands. And basically what they mean by that is treating our forests on public lands like coal fields, cutting down trees and incinerating them uh, for kilowatts. Uh, it's what we call clear cuts for kilowatts. Um, and in many cases, it is a clear cut. In some cases, it's what they call mechanical thinning, uh, which is actually a very in intensive industrial logging operation that usually kills most of the trees in the stand and removes them, including old growth trees. But here's the thing. But wait, wait, just one quick thing. So the reason that if you if we turned this interview around and started with that and then worked out what myths you needed to create in order to justify that clear cutting to kilowatts, you'd have to say that overgrown forests are really a problem. They burn faster and more intense and they lead to these moonscapes and you know those are causing these urban interface fires. All those things would help you justify a policy of cutting down trees and burning them. That's absolutely right. I mean, this is all being driven by, again, what I call the catastrophic wildfire political narrative. The forests are overgrown. They're, they're overstocked. We have to get in there and, and, and clear out uh, these dead trees and all this dense understory of small trees and vegetation. And, uh, and if we do that and we make the forests more open, that somehow fires will burn at low intensity. Um, what uh, Donald Trump uh, calls tree clearing. Um, and, uh, and the reality is, is that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, some of the very densest forests uh, burn at the lowest intensities. Forests that haven't burned in a century still burn at mostly low and moderate intensity, contrary to this myth that uh, everything burns at high intensity if it hasn't burned in a long time. Uh, dead trees don't increase fire spread or intensity. This idea that it's a moonscape and you have to you know, stop these fires and through all this logging operations because otherwise you're going to have these big high-intensity fire patches and nothing will regenerate because the soil's been damaged and nothing will grow. You know, we, we know from study after study that that's not true. You know, even in the biggest high-intensity fire patches, way in the interior, I published a study earlier this year on this in, in patches uh, like in the Rim Fire, we're still getting enormous amounts of post-fire regeneration. Beautiful pine trees, some over the top of my head already, just in five years, oak trees that are already 20 feet tall, uh, beautiful regeneration of shrubs and wildflowers. But we were told nothing would grow there. Exactly. And that's what we're told. I mean, there's a, there's a mythical world that's been created in the public narrative, uh, opportunistically, um, in many cases, cynically, by a lot of people that want to keep this, this logging program going. And, um, and it's being used to justify these destructive policies, including biomass logging. And so here's something that, that you know, it's really important to understand when trees are burned for energy, they produce 45% more CO2, more greenhouse gas emissions than burning coal for an equivalent amount of energy produced. 
It is the dumbest and most climate unfriendly energy source you can possibly imagine. And you know, not only does it does it pump all that CO2 into the atmosphere, but removing those trees from the forest robs the forest of essential nutrients and compacts and damages soil because most of the logging is ground-based. It's you know, heavy tractors on the soil. And what that does is it undermines the ability of the forest to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequester and store it in the forest. And so we're shooting ourselves in the foot, both feet actually, uh, with biomass logging. And yet, even in California, one of the most progressive states in the union, these emergency permits have been granted to build biomass facilities because they have to do it because we have to clear the forest, which is based on the myth that we've gone through today. So it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Exactly. It's a house of cards. And these policies have to change. Um, I think that we, we know a lot more now than we did uh, before. And uh, we need to use that knowledge to go in a different direction. We need to focus uh, on home protection because we- well, I'm going to segue into that. So, okay. So based on all this, let's look forward, Chad. So in 2019, we, you know, I don't think anyone would disagree, no matter where they come on the political spectrum or from what science, you know, however it's funded, that we really need to focus on protecting human life and property. I mean, that, that's got to be our number one, number one thing. And, and- the further we get from that, it seems like we're just dissipating or diluting our efforts to help protect human life and property. Tell us a little bit more about like defensible space. Like it seems like that's a great opportunity. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of jobs in defensible space work. It's it's great work in terms of creating jobs for, for every thousand or million dollars it's spent. Uh, it's it's Good, they're good paying jobs. There's a lot of jobs uh, per dollar spent, uh, much more so than other industries like logging, for example, which is heavily automated and doesn't actually create that many jobs. It seems like there's been this bizarre shifting of responsibility away from what would actually help towards something that's not going to do anything. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to put it. And it's one of the more insidious aspects of this because when people in, in, in rural communities or in suburban communities that are near wildlands, when they think that the fire issue and a potential threat or risk to their homes is out there somewhere, out in wildlands, out there over the ridge, and that it's going to be addressed or solved by some logging project or some chaparral removal project um, by uh, some federal or state agency that's going to suppress and stop the fire. When they think that, it gives people a dangerous false sense of security. And it also, as you said, it shifts responsibility. They think, well, why do I need to put a fire-resistant roof on my house? Why do I need to, to spend a few hundred bucks to put ember-proof vents on my attic spaces or other vents? Why do I need to do my defensible space work? Because you know the Forest Service told me they've got it covered with this logging project half a mile away or, or two miles away. And that misunderstanding, that myth is, is one of the most dangerous because when people don't take those steps, uh, homes burn. And, and, and lives are lost. And so, you know, that's one of the most critical ones that we need to address. You know, we have, we have a, a law in the state of California that says we're supposed to do defensible space around homes near wildlands. Problem is, is that law is not enforced. There's no infrastructure. There's no funding to actually go to people's homes and make sure that that is done every single year. And for people who can't do it physically or, or can't afford it, we need to give people assistance. We need to help and make sure it happens. But that's not where the money's going right now. Right now, the vast majority of the state money and the federal money and the focus is on logging and backcountry fire suppression. 
and, uh, and we just need to completely turn that entire emphasis on its head. A big thank you to Dr. Chad Dobson for speaking with us today. He really helped demystify the current rush to log our forests in the name of fire safety. I think of myself as fairly well-informed, but having talked with Chad, I realized how many fire myths I'd bought into. It's always good to slow down and make sure that our conclusions are informed by peer-reviewed science and that we examine who is behind the research. By creating defensible space around our homes and by making sure our building codes have the most stringent requirements possible when it comes to fire safety, we can help make sure that the impacts of all types of fires are greatly reduced in the future. Next week, we talk with Melanie Challenger, a British environmental philosopher and author about what it means to be human. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving week.